welcome to Unashamed Unafraid, a show unashamed about sexual addiction recovery and unafraid of coming into Christ for healing. Where we talk about real recovery stories, answer anonymous questions with experts, and share resources that actually work. I'm your host, Steve. And I'm your co-host, Chris. And we are Unashamed Unafraid. Steve. Chris. We meet again. A pleasure. <laughs> As always. As always. Gotta love recording podcasts. So, I, we've said this so many times. I'm like, you can't make this up. Right? Like, what an awesome story. Where'd you get this guy? So, I've met him Is he many like the sequel ago. to Forrest Gump? <laughs> well, I met him years ago, but then I, you know, I... I stopped facilitating a LDS 12 step program for a long time. And then, um, in February this year, he had posted that he had 10 hit 10 years of sobriety. So of both substance and sexual. Right. And so, so I reached out to him. I'm like, Hey, by the way, would you be willing to jump on a podcast with us? Cause it would be awesome to have you share your story. Would you be willing for to sure? do that? And he was like, yep, absolutely. I'm like, done. We're having you on. And it was like just ready to go. Yep. Like just you know, we always tell people our, our goal is just to help you share your light and you're like we don't have an agenda. Just share your truth, be unashamed. And um I mean talk about just unashamed. I mean owning and this is one of those uh like stories that when people like you wouldn't bet on this person, right? Like with you yeah. or me where it's like, no, there's definitely a time that if you would have met Chris, the Hulk of hope, you would not have been betting on him or betting on him and Autumn that it would have worked out. You would like take the sure bet that it's not going to work out. Um, and I think Derek is evidence again that the sure bet, the course that set the way it goes that you can't come back from all those shame messages are never true. Shame goes with the fake story. Yep. Because this, it, it was an interesting experience for me because the person I, like we sat with and recorded this with and the story we heard, part it, of me is like, if I wasn't sitting here with him, I don't know that I'd believe it. Right. Like I'd be like, he made that up. But then and a third is. marriage, come on, those don't ever work. Right. Psych, hard enough, they do. Hard enough to get a second marriage to work, but yet a third one and they've been together for a long time. Yeah. And I just... If you don't believe in miracles, if you don't think God can show up for you, I dare you to listen to this. And I dare you to listen to the bonus content because you can even hear even more miracle of how God worked his way into him and his new wife's lives and and what happened there. For sure. For sure. And you can access that bonus content by going to unashamedunafraid.com slash donate. We are a nonprofit, 501c3, and all of the money does not go to pay Jason to edit the audio. He does that at his own goodwill, um, a much of goodwill that he gives. So I'd like to give him a shout out, but all of it goes to fund scholarships, tell people in recovery. And if you are in need, we also invite you to go to the website um, and apply for a scholarship. So join us as an outsider. If you enjoy what you're listening to, give us five stars on iTunes. That's how the world judges and find us. And if you want to hear of a certified, can't make this up, a true miracle of someone who made it back, not because they were that strong, but because God is that good. We invite you to spend some time with our friend, Derek. God had a plan for him. Check it out. 
See you there, Chris. See ya. <laughs>what's up living the dream i'm excited to hear about that right rather than the nightmare that has been parts of my past but yeah yeah. Yeah. a nightmare is still a dream right it's just a bad one yeah yeah (laughs) so um sometimes like when we sit down with people um i'm gonna give everyone what happened in the last five minutes because i loved it um we're like so like you've ever been on a podcast, like you ever shared your story? Like, no, I don't know. It's this really like new thing. Do you Derek show up? He's like, I'm ready when you're ready. We hit and record. I got this. Let's do it. And, um, <laughs> which was awesome. Right. And I, I just love, uh, your authenticity is obvious. So excited Thank to you. get into it. So, um, you know, your story well, um, but I think just to maybe, uh, frame it a little bit differently just to mix it up, uh, for us, um, who was God to you in your addiction? Like if I were to go back to you when you were in height of your addiction and ask, who's God, how would you have answered? I've never answered that particular question, but so to give a little bit of backstory to get the context of the answer of that question. So I was born and raised a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Yep. Um, And, you know, I'll I'll go into a little bit more detail, but I fell away from the church, obviously. And, and, uh, but uh, during that time frame, you know, occasionally people, you know, in context of different conversations or that, I would admit to being a quote Mormon and Uh uh, they'd, sometimes downplay or degrade the church. And I'd always defend it to a point. I'd say, you know, well, regardless of what, what your thoughts are, they're very good with family. They're focused on family and everything else like that. And I think, you know, that's, that's part of my upbringing. That's part of my Mm -hmm. belief and everything like that, that was still there, but had been somewhat encapsulated and kind of thrown in a corner. Um, but if you would have asked me that question, I probably would have said somebody, you know, that God's somebody that really hasn't been a part of my life. Right. At, at that point in time, he wasn't a part of my life, at least as far as what I had seen. I look back in hindsight and I I can see differently in different, in different points, but, um, that I was just like, yeah, just whatever happens, happens kind of thing. And, you know, I'm not too worried about what I'm doing or what the outcome is or, you know, so as far as, uh, from, you know, an interaction with, with God. So, I mean, it was, he, I knew he was there or I believed in him, but it wasn't, this wasn't a big deal. It'd be just like believing that you're sitting across from me now that you're there. But I mean, what I do in my life isn't going to change you and what you're going to do in your life or how you try to influence me. I'm just going to do what I want to do. If that answers the question kind of in Uh, a roundabout. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And then my curiosity goes to what led you to that conclusion? As far as like him not being in my life, I I guess it was, you know, I look back and I'm like hindsight's 2020, but I, it was because that 
I had left him and mm-hmm. I wasn't communicating with him and I wasn't available or my eyes weren't open to see what he was trying to do in my life, you know, or he was trying to do, but because I was denying it on a regular basis and, you know, essentially like the, the Holy Ghost couldn't dwell within me all the time. Um, but on occasion I'd feel the influence, but it was just like, yeah, just whatever. I'll, you know, if it works for me, then I'll do it. But if not, then, hmm, oh, well. Um, yeah. But I, I think it was, you know, I really do think it was that. I believe it was that because, you know, when you stop communicating with somebody, it's not that they don't exist anymore. It's just that they're not. That relationship's gone. It's not there anymore. Right, right. I mean, you can rekindle certain relationships to a degree or to a, you know, type of manifestation, whether it's, you know, a spiritual or a friendship or romantic in some cases, depending on the case, you know, depending on the situations. But, you know, you can't, you have to have, there has to be some effort there. You know, it can't be one-sided. And it was definitely one-sided. He was reaching out to me on occasions that I look back and I can see, but I was not willing to acknowledge them. Yeah. 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 So height of your addiction, like what did that behavior look like? Height of my addictions, plural. Uh Um, um, Jumping in, you know, towards, towards the end that uh, it was, uh, it was heavy methamphetamine use. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, It was heavy influence of porn. Um, I was driving a taxi cab and I was involved in a couple different bouts of infidelity um, among, you know, and, and the accompanying, you know, severe drug use that was, I'm surprised in a couple instances that I came back as physically whole and mentally whole as I am. Yeah. But spiritually I was pretty shattered at that point. Yeah. Yeah. And was, was that your first or second marriage? That was my second marriage. And you are married now. This is for your third time, right? The third time's a charm. Yes. I was, and she's awesome. And she is an amazing woman. I love her to death. As as much as you know, I'm the typical guy that doesn't tell her as much as I need to, but uh, she is an amazing woman. She puts up with my quirks very diligently. Uh, she's a wonderful mother of our four and a half year old monster, uh, little boy. Excuse me, um, <laughs> and uh, you know she's she says that I'm her rock in cases, and but I, I think it, it's it's definitely a two-way street. She inspires me as much as evidently I inspire her in ways too. So it's, it's definitely a blessing. So, so now let's kind of like, let's give people kind of the contextual story. So Mm -hmm. porn and drug use happened teenage years. That was introduced to you when you were older. Like how, how did everything drop into your life? Um, 
Well, I was, like I said, I was born and raised in the church right. and, uh, um, my mom and my dad, they got married. I was conceived. They separated and I was born. So throughout the whole course of my life, my parents have never been together. Um, so I guess in, on one hand, it's, it was a little bit of a benefit because it wasn't anything that I knew and I missed. Like I'd see it elsewhere as, as I was growing up, but, but, uh, and I knew I was missing out, but it wasn't a dynamic that I was familiar with, with my mom and my dad, but it affected me. It definitely affected me. But, uh, growing up, you know, I had very good, uh, grandparents. I lived with my grandparents for quite, quite a few years growing up, um, with my mom. And, uh, I, uh, regularly went to church. Then I started going, you know, getting a little bit in my preteens, teenage years and that, and, uh, started getting a little bit more rebellious, a little bit more, you know, the, the teenage angst, if you will. Um, I was in Southern California and I was living with my mom and, and my stepdad at that point. It was my second stepdad. My mom had been married. Um, this was her fourth marriage. Mm-hmm. And, uh, my second stepdad. And, uh, the first one was when I was really little. I don't recall too much of him, but, um, I just started not caring that much. And, uh, my stepdad wasn't an active member of any, any particular religion, but I'd go to church with my mom sometimes. And, uh, there was one time that I guess she, you know, she evidently had, she had talked to some friends in, in there that in, in church or in the ward that, uh, about some issues she was having with me. And then I went to church the next week or a couple of weeks later or something like that. And I was getting the, the crusty eye from a few people. So what really had happened was, you know, I kind of felt that alienation and I said, I'm, I'm just not going to go back. I'm out. Mm-hmm. I'm out. Yeah, I'm done. Yeah. And literally from about that point until I moved to Utah, my mom called up my dad and my uncle who were living together in Utah. Um, she's like, I can't handle him. Um, he yeah. needs to go up there with you. So I came up here to Utah and, uh, what and were you, you were living in Oklahoma or oh. I, this was when I was, I was living in Southern California. So I was okay. born and raised in Southern California. And then, so yeah, I moved. So up what were you doing that she couldn't handle? Just my attitude. I wouldn't listen. I would, um, I was being not necessarily like, destructive as per se, but I was a little bit more, you know, just kind of self-destructive. I wasn't, I wasn't actively using or, or doing anything that way, but, uh, I had influences in my life. My stepbrother, uh, and his friends, he was quite a few years older than me. He smoked marijuana in the house around me and, uh, um, him and his friends, you know, they were the epitome of the, uh, you know, partying, quote unquote, yeah, uh, sex, drugs, rock sex, and roll, drugs, rock yeah. and roll type thing. So yeah. I was influenced there a little bit. And, um, but then when I moved to Utah with my dad and my uncle, um, my dad had found out my dad had a subscription to a magazine and a pornographic magazine. And well, Hey, you know, I was hitting puberty and, you know, hormones are raging and everything along those lines. So yowza. You know, it was, it was an easy go-to at that point. And my uncle and my dad, they, uh, you know, like, oh, this is what boys do kind of thing. 
And so you didn't have you didn't even feel like you had to hide it at all. Not not so much. I mean I mean. Well, they were doing it I private, mean, doing it, you know, you know, acting out privately, but at the same time, um, yeah, the unspoken you know, was everyone knew it was happening. Yeah, it was, yeah. it was there, you know, I mean, nobody really said anything, but it's like my dad, I remember like my dad saying, you know, if you're going to look at my magazines, make sure you put them away, you know, kind of thing or whatever. But, uh, that was the extent of it. And, uh, I, basically went along that lines for quite a few years until I moved back to California with my mom and my stepdad again. And the reason why I moved back is because my dad and my uncle were frankly raging alcoholics. Yeah. And uh, there was more than one occasion when it was one, two o'clock in the morning and I would run out of my house and I would run to a friend's house pound on his window to wake him up and his mom had protected me one time when my uncle came over and said get him out there you know he he's not yours you can't say this and she's like you get you get out of here otherwise i'm gonna call the police he's safe here he's staying here tonight just and i'm just gonna be straight just physical abuse or what was the danger um more mental but uh yeah you know it wasn't uncommon for me to uh, hear that frap, frap, frap of the belt coming off and mm-hmm. take a few licks that way. So, yeah. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't like a, a regular like thing that way. I mean, it wasn't it was abusive, yes, but it wasn't like a daily thing necessarily. But it was a few times a week kind of thing, you know. And, and it it was due to things that I had done or I had not done. But you so, know. as a teenager, do you know what you were rebelling against? I'm looking back. I mean, I just I just wanted to do what I wanted to do. You know, nobody's going to tell you what to do, right? And uh, you know, there's it's taken me a long time to come to terms with it. But, 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 um, I've, I've often said like my mom, I love her. She's my mom. But if, if she wasn't my mom, we wouldn't be friends. Yeah. We, 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 our personality. Even, even to just, this day. Honestly. Yeah. It's, it's still, you know, it's come a long way and, uh, it's not perfect even today, but at the same time, it's, it's a lot significantly better than what it used to be, obviously. But um, I I used to manipulate her and get her to do what I wanted to do and put guilt trips on her and everything. Plus, else. the addict way. Yeah, and right? I mean this this was even prior to me using anything, you know. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and you know, I look back and I'm like, well, it's gosh, it's in my family, yeah. you know. Um, and, uh, so, I mean, these things happened in, in, in Grantsville and then I go back to California with my mom. So, I mean, I started, like I said, I started doing, uh, started smoking pot and, you know, I started actively being the stoner and whatnot. And, but I still graduated high school, you know, there wasn't any danger there necessarily. Um, but, uh, out of high school, I started a little bit, you know, here or there. I, you know, I, I started drinking when I was about, you know, 19, 20 years old. You know, I started, uh, 
you know, being sexually active in high school, you know, my senior year in high school, you know, and, and as long as I was being placated, I didn't act out as, as severely or, you know, as irregularly, if you will. Sure. Um, so, so tell, so fast forward us to first marriage. Um, so first marriage, I, I had, I was working at a place in Southern California and they were closing that facility. So I had an opportunity to move to Northern California in the Bay area, right. In San Francisco Bay area. Um, and I took it Well, I went up there, ended up long, long story shorter. Um, I met my first wife at a nightclub that I used to go to on, on a regular basis. We hit it off really, really well. Um, I was working at a machine shop there in the Bay Area, and uh, we'd still frequent the bar, and we ended up uh, getting married. Um, she joined the Army right after 9-11, and mm. uh, when she got back from basic training, we got married, and then we moved to Oklahoma. Yeah. So, so did why, did, why did you marry her? I fell in love. I mean, we had a good relationship. Yeah. I mean, it was it was... We, we had fun. We, we had, you know, we, we complimented each other in, in different ways and whatnot. Um, you know, looking back, was the longevity there? No, but I mean, as far as. Yeah, no, totally. You know, well, was, and I think a lot of people can relate to, um, you don't know all the things at, at the time. It does, right. So it doesn't mean, cause I think a lot of times people look at the addict and they're like, Oh, well you knew this marriage wouldn't last or right. you knew. No. And it's like, no, you just didn't know what you didn't know. Right. So, I mean so, that makes yeah. So how, so you moved to Oklahoma. How long were you married? Less than six months. Okay. So what happened? Um, I couldn't find work immediately when I was up there. I ended up getting a job it just kind of, it fell apart. I was working night shift and she was working days doing her, uh, her state work, working her station. She was, she was doing uh, incoming and reception for incoming troops at uh, Fort Sill, Oklahoma. So you guys aren't really even seeing each other very much. No, it was, it was pretty much in passing, you know, like I'd, I'd come home in the morning, I'd give her a kiss on the cheeks, you know, and be like, have a nice day. And I'd go to sleep and she'd go to work. And then I'm getting up in the, I'm getting up in the afternoon when she gets home and we'd kind of talk for a few minutes and then I'd go to work and she'd go to sleep. Big gulps, huh? Well, yeah. see you later. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, that was pretty much it. So she was still socializing with some of her friends that she was working with. Um, long story short, she ended up uh, getting together with uh, her sergeant. Uh, yeah. And uh, she cheated on me. Yeah. And, uh, so that destroyed me. Yeah. Um, well, and I'm just seeing there's a pattern of abandonment. Right. And uh, at that point, I attempted suicide. Um, and I'm an insulin-dependent diabetic. And I overdose on insulin. And, you know, just as a side note to anybody that might be listening, don't do that. It sucks. It was absolutely horrible. It is not a lay down and go to sleep way. You know, it's, it's absolutely torturous. It's absolutely horrible. And I, and I lived through that. Thank goodness. Um, and 
you know, got some counseling and, and, and yeah. that, but, uh, and we attempted counseling to try to save our marriage and it didn't work. And, um, we ended up getting divorced. So, yeah. So second marriage, mm-hmm. why'd you get married? Um, she was one that I actually worked with and, uh, we, uh, hit it off really well. And, uh, she, she remembered seeing me go through what I was going through with my first divorce. Uh-huh. And she knew that I was a really cool guy or she thought that I was a really cool guy and everything else like that. And how horrible it was that this, you know, woman could do me that way kind of thing. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, <clears throat> and like I say it was about a year or so. And, uh, so why did you marry her? I think once again, you know, it was, we had a lot of things in common. We had a little bit of a past. We had, you know, some issues and whatnot, but uh, we both liked to smoke pot and, you know, enjoy an occasional drink. We did pretty well for, you know, for for quite a few years. Uh, yeah. How long were you married? Um. It was either just shy or just over five years. Mm-hmm. So, and why did you get divorced? Well, prior to me, and you know when she was younger, um, she was also addicted to meth. Huh. And uh, were you guys using meth together before, like when you guys first got married? No, no. Um, we ended up. After I think it was about four years or so, um, I was I I inf- I brought it in a little bit, and she found out that I had used it a couple times, and then she's like, "Why didn't you ask me? We could have done something together." And she was evidently a little bit more open to it. Um, we started getting fairly hot and heavy. Um, I was selling a lot of pot through my house uh, to help supplement. Your addiction, my addictions, and uh, um, at that point, uh, I ended up getting a laptop, um, and uh, started looking up stuff. And I was looking up stuff with my with my wife at the time. Well, and and for those who may be unaware, right, right. using meth heightens your sexuality. Quite a bit, yeah. And your sexual drive. So yeah. if people aren't putting... Right, right. If you don't have that in the background, if you're right. like, it's, what are it's, they... It's like, certain it's, different drugs do different things, right? right. And it's, so that's one like, of... It's yeah. like violent Viagra. Right. I would I would say that's a, that's a fairly, you know, fairly accurate um, description of it at, at certain points in time, you know? Right, totally. Because like, I want to point out, right, like that, like sexuality and meth... Like their addiction best friends. Oh yeah, yeah. Because you know, hey, I've got some. Let's come over and we can act out right however we want to. Right. And that happened on more than one occasion. Yeah. Um, both with my wife and with other women. Yeah. Um, and it sucked. It was, I look back and I, 
I didn't just take part in destroying my life, but I was destroying hers. And, you know, in previous times of, of telling my story, I couldn't hardly talk about some of this stuff. I don't, I never frivolously brought out a lot of those details, you know? Well, because the pain is real. Oh yeah. It's, and I guess I like in a, in a big way, I feel like in addiction, there's this denial in this fantasy land that Mm -hmm. if I was with two women or if I was in an open marriage or if, if, if all these things that are fed in, right, addiction land and on TV and in our culture that, you know, this is really fun or this is what this looks like. And I think to sit with someone who can say, oh, no, I know what it actually looks like. And it's not as glamorous as it seems to be. Right. And, and it's, it's, it's just false. I mean, anytime that you're on this high, you, I mean, I can, I can actively look back and, and say, wow, I had a good time, but wait a minute. No, no, I didn't because it wasn't, it wasn't me. It wasn't, yeah. you know, me wanting to do these things, you know, at least in its entirety. Um, but it, because I wouldn't, say those things under a normal circumstance or in a sober circumstance. I, you know, when, when I was, when I was with her towards the end, you know, I was, as I said, I was driving a taxi cab and I'd go out and I'd just hang out at the strip clubs because I could get in for free and just, just hang out. Yeah. Because I could take people home and make money that way. So it was, you know, I'm making money. Right. I'm helping support my family. So that was my justification in that aspect, you know, so it wasn't, you know, in its entirety bad is at least that's the way I was, I was manipulating my own mind and my own opinion of what I was doing, you know, because when I'd go out to those clubs, they were out of town and I'd get a higher fare coming into town. So I'd make some good money. Um, so then what, what brought you to the actual divorce with you guys? If you guys were both into this, enmeshed to it together, what, why the divorce? I, I came to a point when I was actually sober one time, and I realized that my life was going to hell in a handbasket. And I called my mother, who lives in St. George still, and I said, I need to get out of here. Can you help us out? And my mom wired me some money. I was able to get a hitch put on our car, and it was a Pontiac Grand Am, and we pulled a U-Haul trailer with as much stuff as we could stuff in there, which we ended up having to take some stuff out because it was literally scraping the ground. Um, and left Oklahoma. Her family was still there, but we... Uh, you just needed to leave that area that you were in. I had to get out. Yeah. Which is one of the worst and best things that, that I've ever done. 
Um, we got to St. George, literally like on fumes. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I look back at that and I say, that was, that was literally the grace of God that was like blowing literally. I mean, like my, my, my fuel light had come on like in hurricane coming in from down South that way. And, and it was, I, it was, it was literally miraculous that I made it into town. So we got in there and at that point, um, we were able to stash a little bit of our vice with us on the way, uh, but not much at all. Well, we ended up, uh, staying with my mom. I was trying and trying and trying to find work. And my wife uh, at the time, my second wife, um, it didn't feel like she was looking for anything, you know, and it was just like totally trying to rely on me. And we were living off my mom. And, uh, one day, uh, we got up and there were some neighbors that they ended up sharing some tequila with us and we took a couple shots early in the day and uh we were still basically detoxing yeah so we were you know kind of at each other's throats fairly regularly and uh we got into a fight and it wasn't just a verbal fight and uh I spent 30 days in jail for domestic violence. And I've only said that to a few people. I look back at that and that was the best and worst day of my life in, in different aspects. Why the best, why the worst? Well, I'd, I'd, I'd gone down so low. It's like I... I'd, I'd, I went in and I was in jail. Was like my, my life had come apart. I was trying to do good. And, you know, you know, here I am trying to put myself out, trying to help myself, trying to help my family that, that we had, trying to do this. And where the hell was God at? And, you know, it's, so much for trying to do something good. Found out while I was locked up in there that my wife had called her parents and gone back to Oklahoma. It's pretty much knocked me down a little bit more there. But uh, while I was in there, um, you know, it's really hard it, it's it's no fun um and uh when i was first in there i i i put some of the blame on my diabetes because they were they were being a little bit belligerent and trying to give me my a medication and i couldn't eat anything and i was hungry and i and i just couldn't eat anymore otherwise i was going to probably end up winding up in a coma if i would have eaten anything 
And uh, I may have made some threats to the uh, uh, jail nurse. And uh, I told him, you know, I'd catch him on the streets. I'd beat him up or something like that, you know, and in a little bit more aggressive, aggressive way. way, Yeah. Um, And so they put me in solitary. And I was in solitary for about a week. Mind you, they, they, you could come out of your cell and you go to the showers once a day. And, you know, you, you got like maybe 15 minutes or 20 minutes or something like that of active physical time where you could walk up and down the stairs. Oh, that makes it sound much better. Oh, yeah. Thanks it was, for it was, clarifying. It was, wonder, it was wonderful, yeah. But you couldn't communicate with anybody. And uh, I, I found out that there was a... There was a guy that was in there for like uh, multiple murders. I was like, "Hey, man, if you need anything, oh my gosh!" You know? <laughs> so you know, I was, I was, I, I had some really cool friends in there, um, <laughs> but uh, so did, so did that change who you were when being in there? Like what? Yes, and absolutely. So I was in there, and I can't remember which happened first, but there was two major instances instances that happened while I was incarcerated. And I think it was this first, but I, I don't suffer from insomnia. I could not sleep. I was laying on that wonderfully comfortable Sealy posturpedic mattress that they have in there. It, <laughs> it It's, it's steel. <laughs> and I was looking at the white, cinder block wall across from my bed. I was literally, it was like a movie screen. And my life didn't flash before my eyes. It was like I was watching a movie of all of the horrible, heinous, ill-gotten things that I had done in the last years. And especially up to the crowning achievement that landed me in jail. And at that point, something happened. And I know now that it was, it was literally the Holy Ghost reaching out to me. Like, there's somebody that can help you. You just need to ask. And I remember kneeling down on a concrete floor next to a steel cot in a white cinder block room. And I've never cried like that in my life. And I prayed. And I talked to my Heavenly Father. And I I just begged him that I needed help. And, you know, where had he been? And, you know, here I am trying to do, you know, I was attempting to do, you know, have this change of heart and life and everything else. And, you know, it was... You know, here I am thinking I'm I'm on this uphill trend and then the road stopped and I came crashing down. And it was a violent 
fall. And I don't know how long I was on my knees, but when I was finally done, after all that turmoil and chaos and, you know, just everything that was in my head at that point, I found solace. And I went to sleep. And I think I want to say it was the next day. Um, my uncle. Is this uncle that lived with that or different uncle? This is a different uncle. This is okay. a, this is my mother's brother. Okay. So, okay. um, and, uh, he came and he visited me and I remember, you know, like if you've never been in that situation, I mean, I think everybody's pretty much seen, uh, TV shows or like the copumentaries, if you will, or, you know, like uh-huh. crime shows or that, where it shows somebody sitting on the other side of the glass with the telephone yeah. in their hand, talking to their lawyer or loved one or friend right. or whatever on the yeah. other side of the glass. And that was me and my uncle. And he asked me a question. He says, what is your relationship with your heavenly father? And like, actually, I was just praying about that. <laughs> and... I asked him if he's familiar with the footprints poem. Basically, uh, and, I'll, and I'll give the 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 one you know the Derek second, version, the Der- yep. you know the Derek version, but the, you know the the thirty second thirty second synopsis of it. Uh, a man dies and talking to Heavenly Father, and he sees these tracks going through his life along this beach, and he says, you know, why is it? You know, there's two sets of tracks, and I see that that's when you were with me and and that. And he says, but how come in the hardest times of my life, there was only one set of tracks? He says, why would you leave me? And the Lord said, that's not when I left you. That's when I carried you. When my uncle asked me what your relationship with your heavenly father is, and I said, I asked if he was familiar with that poem. And I said, and he said, yes. And I said, there's been one set of footprints for a very, very long time and you know as I say you know hindsight's 2020 and there was so many times that I was protected undeservingly I think but nonetheless I was protected I was watched over God had a plan for you yeah and I had like I mean I attempted suicide. Thank goodness out of all the things that I have succeeded with in my life, I was unsuccessful. Um, But I had somebody watching over me. And so he had challenged me to start reading the Book of Mormon because I had a little bit of time on my hands. And uh, throughout the course of of my incarceration, I got about halfway through and uh, um, continued on afterwards. Um, my uncle, the wonderful man that he is, um, he picked me up from from jail and uh, he said, uh, you know, rather than put you back at your mom's house where 
you know, you have all these memories and then, you know, it's not going to be the greatest place for you to be right. and everything else like that. He says, we've got an extra room. You can stay in my house. And he says, you got, he says, you got 12 months. He says, at that point, he says, I want you to be. Get your act together, yeah. figure it out. Right. And, uh, and then, he, so were you, obviously you were sober by this time. Yes. But two, 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 one, one is my sobriety date. I've recently this year hit 10 years. That was the reason why I reached out to you. <laughs> so yeah, I remember you, you said you saw my post on Facebook, but yeah. And that's something I, I don't, I don't actively, uh, you know, boast or brag about, you know, things that I do on a regular basis. I mean, um, but that is one thing that I am proud of. And that's one thing that, you know, every year today I celebrate. Right. So you are 10 years sober from? Accurately substance. All substance. And shortly thereafter, I don't have a hard date, but uh, um, not too long afterwards when I finally realized like, oh, wait, I've got an addiction to pornography. Oh, boy. That sucks. I need and to I, figure that out too. I need to figure that one out too. Um, but that was a little bit of time later, but I'm not far behind. Yeah. So in this journey, like over the last 10 years, who have you learned God is? Because it went from don't care to where are you? to where like today who is he he's he's my eyes he's my eyes that if i have my eyes open i can see where i'm going i can see where i need to go hmm. i you know it's I mean, it's kind of, it's pretty easy for me to look at what it is now, but he, I mean, he's, he's where I need to go. He's, he's, he's also, you know, and, and it's not to say that I haven't had hard times, you know, in these 10 years. I mean, sure. My wife and I today, as wonderful as she is, we have hard times on occasion, you know, nothing to the extent or to the style of, the other things in my past, but I mean, everybody has hard times, right? I mean, to what course. severity or anything like that or degree or uh, type is irrelevant because your, your battles that you have or have had may have been insurmountable to you. But for me, something that you would have experienced and had a hard time with, I'm like, yeah, whatever. It's easy. So what kind of things are you doing now to uh, remain sober, both in all your day? Well, I guess just in all your addictions. Um, and I think I, well, after after it being ten years, I mean, like when I first started out, it was I w I was mandated by the courts to go to an addiction recovery program, and I had to do thirty sessions in ninety days, and. I had gone when I'd gotten out and I went and I got to my, uh, at my uncle's house, my aunt said, well, Hey, the church has this 12 step recovery program. And so she took me to my first one and 
that started the ball rolling. I started doing this 12, the 12 step process. And, you know, as you go through those, if, if anyone's ever been to one of those or regularly gone to one, they, and if you haven't, you just need to go. Yes, absolutely. Whether you're an addict or not. Absolutely. That's just like self-improvement for dummies. I mean, it really is. I, totally. It's, it's, it's totally like totally. these basic steps. And I don't recall exact time frame for me, but um, I ended up going through quite a few times uh, with the courses. And w- once my court mandate for those courses ended, I, I still went. I yeah. went at least weekly, you know, and uh, I uh, went through my divorce finalized with my second wife via long distance and uh, had a little bit of a hard time there, but it, it was literally just a little bit of a hard time. And, and I attribute that 100% to being at a different place mentally, spiritually, physically, you know, everything. I, I remember you're truly in recovery. Yeah. And it was, it was just amazing. Like I remember, um, you know, with, within the church, you know, you, you have, you go through a ecclesiastical leader, you know, in, in my case, it was my bishop. Um, and I remember setting up an appointment with him and went in there and it literally, I, I distinctly remember walking in there like, I'm going to tell him things that I've never told anybody other than the people that have experienced it right alongside me. Right. And when I walked out of there, I literally like physically felt lighter of foot. A weight had been lifted. It was amazing. It was, it was miraculous for me. It was so, you know, liberating that I was able to just walk out of there and say, I'm a new man. Literally. And, you know, the, the long story of, of your question, Chris was, you know, of what do I do is I still maintain those steps. They have the last three steps are the, like the maintenance steps. Um, and that includes, you know, your, your continual prayer, your church attendance, your, you know, scripture study, those, those sorts of things. But now it's been, it's become and now second. helping other people, but you've and been now, helping people yeah. for a long time. Cause you actually became a facilitator of the ARP program. Yes. Yes. And that, and that was something that, that is so amazing, you know, and, and that's, that's where uh, Chris and I had, had met and uh, we were facilitating together for, for uh, a group there. And we saw amazing amazing men going coming in broken and men and youth because we worked with the the youth pilot program for 16 to 18 year olds which was amazing yes and we were we were in that for i mean it was i was in it for four years and i was in it for i think about at least three yeah two and a half three years something like that but we saw these young men and, and throughout the other uh meetings that i facilitated at i'd see people come in broken yeah i don't take credit for that because I just think that in many of those ways that I was just a vessel that I was. Well, and I, I think you're pointing to right a big part of this. And I think this would, this would be a good thing for us to like end on. I'm going to 
put this back to you is mm-hmm. um, the community. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Like being in a community, cause it was, in, it's, there's an interesting parallel here of that at your lowest, you were literally in isolation. Yes. Like when people are like, I'm in a prison cell by myself. Like you literally were. Right. Like metaphorically in your mind and physically in your oh, world. Yeah, absolutely. And and um and so if you if you could speak to those people who are broken or not ready to admit that they're broken, what would you tell them being where you are today? It's possible. It's perfectly possible. It's perfectly viable. And no matter what? Absolutely no matter what. No matter what. Your world and you know, I'm I'm not one to pull punches. Your world may go lower than it is now. I hate to say that. It may suck for a little bit. Yeah. It may really suck for a little bit. But and a little bit might be a little relative. Right. Yeah. Right. And you might lose your everything. But when you're at the bottom, there's only one direction to go. Yeah. And you know what? You can climb a hill and climb out of a hole much faster when you have help. And there is one person and one person alone living this day that can give you the most help. And that's Christ. It's amen to that. And I had, I wrote something one time and I had a little picture of like hands almost touching. And it was love, the one thing always within your grasp but only if you reach with a fully extended arm. Christ will help you up. Others will help you up. But you have to put forth some effort yourself. Because he'll stand over you. You could be laying on the ground, you know, and I'll put it in a literal manner, that when you fall down, you know, I could stand over you and have my hand out and be bending over and just be right there but if you don't reach up and clasp my hand, yeah. it's, it's not going to help you. And that's the way it is with Christ. That's the way it is with God. He can't force you to do what you don't want to do. But as soon as you reach up, that hand is not going to slip. Yeah. The only one that would slip is you. I can honestly say right now, you know, in the proverbial case, you know, in a literal case that if, if somebody were, you know, and obviously it's not going to happen because those things really don't happen in real life. But if somebody were to just hand me a whole tray full of drugs of my favored things, I'd be like, no, there would be that small part that would say, Hey, you remember how that fun that was? But I am established so well now, and I can comfortably say that, not to brag, but I'm not established within myself. I'm established with my Heavenly Father. Well, and I I love that you speak that because, um, you know, I say all the time, like, if you believe in once an addict, always an addict, you don't believe in Jesus because 
that the idea that you have to manage this, right? The idea of right. managing it the rest of your life, like Christ truly sets us free. Right. So um, I think, as you know, we always end with a song. Mm-hmm. And so this epic journey that you have been on and the transformation that not only you've had in your heart, but of how you see God, if you had a song. I always loved, it was an old folk song originally, and it's called Green Sleeves. But the tune is what is used for what child is this? And it's, you know, about the Savior's birth. And I, and I say, there is no depth that you can go that Christ cannot redeem you. For those not familiar and for those who are familiar, there's, there's, a, there's a man who ended up becoming a prophet in the Book of Mormon, Alma the Younger. And he preaches to me personally. And he was a vile, vile youth, to put it lightly. And he became a prophet of God. And though I do not see myself in any way, shape, or form at this point, anywhere remotely reaching prophethood, if that's a, if that's a sure. proper term. Yeah. But who who's stopping me or what's preventing me from becoming a good man, a good father, a good husband, yeah. a good citizen? Yeah. You know, and I and I think that that that's really speaks volumes to me and hopefully you know it it reaches out and it touches somebody else too but i think you know i kind of look at some some of the aspect it's a beautiful song the what you know green sleeves or what child is this um and christ started his mortal ministry somewhere he started as a child we start as children we have to learn he had to learn you know, he he set the example for what we can be. Absolutely. And Absolutely. I think that when you start from you have to start from somewhere and that's that's this that's the song of his beginning and maybe somewhere out there it can be the song of somebody else's beginning of their way back. Yeah. Derek, thank you so much for coming on, man. My pleasure. Um, so, uh, if you've enjoyed what you've heard here, we invite you to give us five stars on iTunes. That's how the world finds us. Um, the algorithms decide what populates and more people hear this message of hope. Um, if you have a story to share or a question that you want answered, you can submit that our website, any anonymous questions are on social media and you can follow us on social media at unashamed and afraid. Um, and uh, if you are in need of help in your recovery process, we invite you to go to unashamedunafraid.com slash scholarships and you can apply for the scholarships we have available to help you in your recovery. So please do. Um, and you can help us build and do those scholarships and be a part of our community of outsiders by donating at unashamedunafraid.com slash donate. 
Um, and with that, um, we hope that you can believe because before me is a man that it's hard to believe that the story he just told was true based on who's sitting here today. And so with that, we invite you till we meet again to be unashamed. Chris, always a pleasure. Thanks. It's awesome to be here. And Derek, thank you again. That's again, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming out, Derek. Mm -hmm. And with that, we'll leave you with green sleeves.